Uh, good afternoon. Well, it seems like morning Sunday school. You're supposed to be doing that in the morning, aren't you? So I have to try to adjust my, uh, my, uh, my clock to uh, recognize that it's uh, afternoon, but it sort of feels like morning. We only have a certain amount of time together, and um, uh, only a couple days ago, just before I left to come out, I get this text mail message from Emilio. Now, I get strange text messages from Emilio fairly regularly uh, because most of Emilio's text messages fall into the strange category. Uh, and uh, he says, uh, would you be willing to do a Sunday school on the grammar of justification? And I'm sort of like, yeah, is there any particular reason? Because sometimes you get a request like that, you know, you'd, you had a conversation with someone and they had some questions about X, Y, or Z or something like that. And it was like, no, it just sounds cool. Oh, okay, all right, whatever you, whatever you say. Um, so, but when you ask someone who has taught Greek... Uh, to do a lesson on Greek grammar, uh, well, you better be prepared for whatever you end up getting as a result. So, uh, if you all have to be nudged awake at the end of this, don't blame me. Uh, Blame the guy uh, that gave me the specific topic that I was supposed to be (coughs) addressing, and I interpreted it in rather fundamentalistically literal fashion. And so... That's what we will be, uh, be looking at. Turn with me, uh, since we're going to be looking at a number of uh, passages, to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Um, uh, those of you who were at the uh, conference know that a few weeks ago, uh, I was in Germany with a, a group uh, from Alpha and Omega. We did a Reformation tour, and yeah, it, it had a huge impact on me to see places I've been lecturing about for most of my adult life anyways. First class I taught after I graduated from seminary was church history, so it's always been a passion of mine. And, and uh, one of the things that really struck me was uh, in the castle church in Wittenberg. I had never, I had been to the castle church before. I had been outside. I had had the obligatory picture taken outside the castle church door, you know, done all that kind of thing. But I had never been inside the, the church before. And so uh, we sort of were able to take over the church for a while because we had a service there. And uh, right across from the pulpit, and in fact, I made reference to it uh, while I was preaching, right across from the pulpit on the far side of the wall uh, in stained glass was Romans 3.28 in German. And if you're familiar uh, with the history of the Reformation and with uh, apologetics in regards to Roman Catholicism and things like that, you know that uh, Luther rendered Romans 3.28 in a way that is subject to criticism by Roman Catholic apologists today. They would say that Luther misrepresented or mistranslated uh, Romans 3.28. Well, how did he do that? Well, specifically, he did so in looking at it, for we, we reckon or we conclude uh, that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law... And when Luther rendered that, he was at the Wartburg Castle uh, hiding from the empire, and in 10 months he translated the New Testament into German. And when he did so, uh, he said, Dersch Glaube allein, through faith alone, sola fide. Sola fide, one of the five uh, solas of the Reformation. And I hope you, you recognize uh, that it was about the 19th or 20th century before anyone identified five solas of the Reformation. 
Uh, if you think that uh, Luther and Calvin were riding around horses with the five solas on a banner or something like that, they didn't, uh, they didn't do that. Um, the five solas of the Reformation are a modern looking back at the Reformation and going, these are the principles that gave rise to the primary emphases of Reformed teaching and preaching in the Reformation as a, as a whole. And yes, sola scriptura, sola fide, they did use those phrases, but it wasn't like they went, here are our five uh, things. We do that today more looking back and summarizing things than they did at that particular point in time. But he is criticized uh, for misrepresenting the original language uh, because it says, Dikaiostai pistai anthropon chorus ergon namu. Now, what's interesting and what most Roman Catholics who listen to Catholic answers and uh, will, will tell you, ah, see, you're just following Luther there and no one before Luther ever thought, what they don't know is that we know of at least three Roman Catholic translations, not in German, but in other languages, I think at least two were in Latin, that were done in the century before Luther that used sola fide in that particular passage. Why? Well, because of the grammar of the text. When you have chorus ergon namu, apart from works of the law, and then positively you have justified by faith, the contrast between the two lends itself to understand it's faith alone, not by works of law. There is a contrast being set up. And so there is, there's nothing in the text that would suggest that what the author was actually thinking is, well, by faith plus other kinds of obedient works other than works of law. You see... Today, we live in a day where you have this movement called the New Perspective on Paul, which just basically means that today you've got a lot of people um, who are willing to come up with new contexts for the Apostle Paul because in, in the academy, in academia, the one thing that you can absolutely take as a given is that if it's supportive of Orthodox historic Christianity, it can't be right. It, 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 it just, it, it can't. You're not going to get anywhere in the modern academy by doing research that actually substantiates historic Christian orthodoxy. And so, unfortunately, the very way we do scholarship means that you're rewarded by finding new ways of doing things, which is also called heresy. And so the very way we do education promotes heresy. And so the idea that... uh, that you can look at the New Testament and what you need to do, and this is what Christians have done down through the ages, is you need to look at it as a whole, that you need to read it in a harmonious fashion, that you, you don't start by assuming a contradiction between Paul and James and Paul and Peter and, and contradiction within Paul himself and everybody's contradicting Jesus and everybody in the New Testament is contradicting everybody in the Old Testament. If you don't start there, you're not really a part of the modern academy anymore because that's where they do start. For down through history, Christians had said, no, uh, innocent until proven guilty. Uh, you, you assume that Paul is not contradicting Paul. 
And you assume that when Paul says that he and Peter are preaching the same message, that they are pre- preaching the same message. And, and uh, you find a way to understand what James is saying and what Paul is saying. And it's not difficult to do at all to harmonize them without disrupting their original meanings and without disrupting their original context at all. In fact, it's the easiest way to read them. That is all just, you're just not allowed to do that anymore. You're not allowed to do that in seminary anymore, almost anywhere. There's, there's a few conservative seminaries left, but I hate to tell you, in the vast majority of them, you're just not allowed to do that. That's, that's, people look at you like, oh, you're one of them. Uh, okay, fine. You know, I, I was Fuller's token fundamentalist when I was there in the 1980s, uh, and so I know the feeling. It's only gotten worse in the decades that have passed since then. So if you simply allow the text to speak for itself, and you look at what Paul is having to say, what he's saying here, then it makes perfect sense to understand by faith alone, by the instrumentality of faith without any kind of works of law. But, but you see, people today have defined works of law as a, in, in a new way. They're just simply called boundary markers. They're, they're ethnicity markers. And, and you have very popular people teaching in the church today. It's a very, very popular uh, theologian in, in, uh, in England that I'm not sure a lot of people who follow him really understand him. And he is a brilliant guy. And I think he is on the side of the angels, but there are some places where he just thinks that he's come up with stuff that no one in the history of church has ever thought of. And I'm really concerned about anybody who thinks that they've come up with something that no one in the history of the church has ever, ever thought of. And you know I'm talking about N.T. Wright. And Tom Wright uh, has some unique ways of looking at these things, and, and people want to be on the cutting edge, and so they want to follow Tom Wright. And and uh, Tom Wright doesn't think that justification really has anything to do with salvation. Uh, justification is simply church membership. It is fellowship uh, within the church. And, and he thinks he can get us to the same, the same end game as the Reformers did just by another route. I'm not really sure that that actually ends up working. But, but that's, you, you may wonder sometimes why you hear people preaching that have come out of seminary, and you just don't understand how they get where they're going. Well, it's because of what they're being taught in those seminaries is the cutting edge of things. But the reality is, I think Luther was exactly right. And as you stand in the, in the pulpit there in the castle church, you look straight across, there's Romans 3.28, and there's faith alone. Uh, now, of course, that wasn't there at Luther's day, in case you're wondering. Uh, <clears throat> they didn't have actually any stained glass of Luther during Luther's day, but uh, that, that came at a later point in time. But it's right there. Faith alone is the means by which a man is made right, justified before God. Well, what does justified mean? The term is dikaiao. And if you understand Roman Catholic teaching, uh, to be justified and to be sanctified are the same thing. There is a mixture and a confusion of justification and sanctification in Roman Catholic theology. Now, how are you justified? within Roman Catholicism. Well, you're justified by baptism initially. And so uh, when a baby is baptized at the font, uh, they are made just in God's sight. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that God has proclaimed them to be right before him? Well, the reality is, in Roman Catholic theology, there is an infusion of grace into the very soul of the individual that makes that individual pleasing in God's sight. And so there is a a change that takes place in the soul that makes you pleasing to God, makes you right with God. And so if you were to die in that state, it's called the state of grace, because you're pleasing to God, then he will bring you into 
his presence. But the problem is that you can then increase that state by your works. So you can increase your justification by doing good works, which are prompted by grace, but grace that only cooperates with your free will. And so these are works that, that, that you're enabled to do by grace, but grace is not capable in and of itself. There has to be this synergism, this cooperation between the human will and grace. And so you can grow in that grace of justification, but you can also lose the grace of justification. There are different kinds of sins in Roman Catholicism. You have mortal sins and venial sins. And a venial sin will not destroy the grace of justification, but it does stain your soul so that you have what are called the temporal punishments of sin upon your soul. And that's why you have to do penances, and that's why you have to do confession and and things along those lines to to get rid of the temporal punishments of those sins. (coughs) And if you still have temporal punishments of sin upon your soul when you die, that's why there's a place called purgatory. And you go to purgatory to have those stains cleansed from your soul. Purgatory is not a second chance salvation system. If you die outside the state of grace in historic classical Roman Catholic theology, I don't know what the current pope believes. Um, He's at least an inclusivist, probably a universalist, who knows. But at least in historic, classical Roman Catholic theology, if you die outside the state of grace, there's no hope for you. You're going to go to hell. Uh, Rome has always affirmed that, though I would estimate that more than half of the Roman leadership today, if you include the bishops and the cardinals uh, as the, the, what's called the magisterium of the church, I'd say over half the Roman Catholic Church today doesn't believe that anymore. So how long, and how long before they redefine that? I don't know. I don't know. Well, how can they redefine that and claim to be infallible? Hey, it's whatever the current guy says. Whatever the current guy, he's the one that gets to interpret even what's been said in the past. Uh, I, I remember once uh, pointing out to a Roman Catholic apologist that uh, it was very, very clear that in history, uh, popes had said it's absolutely necessary in a, in a papal bull called Unum Sanctum, it's absolutely necessary to be subject to the Roman pontiff for the salvation of any human being. And then I contrasted that with what was said by a modern pope, and they're not saying the same things, and I know Pope Francis wouldn't say that. And his response was, yeah, but you're claiming to interpret what was believed back then. Only the modern Catholic Church can interpret that. Well, it was obvious what was meant back then. There's no question about what was meant back then. But, ah, only the church gets to interpret that. So you see, it's almost like 1984 religiously. You know, all you, have to, all you got to do is, you know, newspeak. Just redefine what was taught in the past and all will be well. And that's what happens when you have an ultimate authority uh, in the person of the, of the papacy in that form. So anyway, that's a venial sin. If you commit a mortal sin, it destroys the grace of justification. And so if you commit a mortal sin, you're no longer a friend of God. That change, that grace which was infused into your soul at baptism is gone. And now you're the enemy of God and you'll go to hell if you die in that state. But you can be re-justified by going through the sacrament of penance and the, the priest gives you certain things you have to do and then you're re-justified. So you can be justified, unjustified, justified, unjustified. You can grow in justification and then go backwards. Uh, that's what happens when you make justification and sanctification the same thing. You connect them together. Now, biblically, they are intimately connected, but they are also distinguished as to what they mean. 
to justify someone. If you want to really see what justification means, and, and there's a reason why we're looking primarily at Romans, uh, because this is the theme of Romans. But if you look at Romans chapter 8, if you want to see a, the, the picture of justification that comes out there very, very clearly, after the golden chain of, uh, of redemption that is given to us in Romans eight twenty eight and following, beginning in verse 31, Paul says, you know, therefore, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, he who did not uh, hold back or spare his own son, but... Uh, gave him over for us all, how shall he not together with him uh, freely give to us grace to us all things? And then you have this picture of a law court beginning in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against the elect of God? And that's a technical Greek term to lodge a legal complaint against someone. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Theos ha dikaion. God is the justifying one. So there's our term, dikaiao, to justify. God is the one justifying. And we know that this term is used in, in legal language. You know, since the 1920s, uh, we've begun fi- we began finding these uh, secular papyri, papyri that were written in the first century, contemporaneous with the New Testament. For hundreds of years, some people theorized that the Greek of the New Testament was a Holy Spirit language. Uh, that it was specially made just for the writing of the, of the New Testament. But since then, we've discovered it was the common language of the day. Uh, and that's what you'd expect it to be. If you want the gospel to go out to the common people, if it's supposed to go out to all the world, uh, we can be very thankful for a guy named Alexander the Great, who conquered most of the known world, spread the Greek language all over the place, and hence opened a, a highway for the gospel to go out to all the world only a few centuries later. And so we, di- we discovered all these papyri, uh, which are private letters between you know, military people and scholars and just regular folks and all sorts of bills of sale and just stuff that most of us would find extremely boring, but they're not boring because they illustrate for us how words were being used at that time. And so we'll find dikaiao, and it's used in legal documents, and it's used in the sense of the judge declaring someone not guilty, to be right in light of the court. And so they will judge between someone, and, and they'll, they'll, a charge is brought against someone, same term it's used here, and the judge says, no, this person is righteous. This person is right in the eyes of the court. And so the question is asked, how can anyone bring a charge against God's elect? Because God is the one, Dikaion, he is the justifying God, the God who justifies He is the one who makes that forensic declaration, this person is right before me. Well, how can he do that? Well, he asks, who then is condemning? The opposite of justifying is to condemn. And who is the one who can condemn? Well, Christ Jesus, the one who died, rather who was raised up, who is also at the right hand of God, who is also interceding in our behalf. Now, I don't have time to point this out, but this to me is one of those really plain places where the work of Christ in his death is connected to his work as, his, as the high priest. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for a certain people who have just been identified only a sentence earlier as the elect of God. If the scope of his intercession is specifically for the elect of God, then the scope of his death is for the elect of God 
as well. It seems very clear to me. But the point is, there can be no one who condemns because the God-man who died and rose again is interceding in their behalf. So how can there be a ground of condemnation? Since the penalty of the law is death, he has died in their place. His resurrection demonstrates that God has accepted his sacrifice. He is at the right hand of the Father. He has been exalted to the right hand of authority and power, and he intercedes for the elect of God. Who can bring a charge against someone like that that will bring about their condemnation? And so this is what justification means. It means to be declared right. And the basis by which God can do this with justice is because of the finished work of Christ in behalf of a specific people. And yes, I would argue that to present the strongest, most consistent case for justification by faith requires you to be fully biblical, and that is to recognize that that uncomfortable little category of the elect of God. Uh, If you turn the, the, the intention of Christ into an attempt in his death rather than an accomplishment in his death, you open the door for additions to his work and I've seen it. I've seen this happen. There's only one group that can consistently debate the best Rome has to offer today without compromise, and it's Reformed folks. Um, I've seen it happen. You've maybe watched some of the debates and seen how this works out uh, as well. So in the grammar itself, in the meaning of the language, we have this picture of what it means to be made righteous, to be declared righteous. Now, it's It's not that Paul hadn't already given us this. Look back at Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, 4 through 5, we have that incredible text. And it it doesn't come across quite as clearly in most English translations as I would like it to. Uh, So I will somewhat um, emphasize it here as I translate it for you. Now, to the one... Working, it's literally to the working one, the one who is engaging in effort. Uh, you've heard of an ergonomic chair. Uh, that's, the, that's the term ergon. That's, that's the term that's being used here. It means to work, to be, be engaged in activity. And it's to the working one, the wage, standard word for what you would get for doing work. The wage is not reckoned or imputed, same term, legizomai, according to grace or as a gift, but according to what is owed. So the category, if you do something to receive something, the category in which that takes place is wages. It's what is owed to you, legally and morally owed to you. If you go to work for somebody and they say, I'm going to pay you X amount of money for X amount of work, then you are owed that when you do the work. It's just simply a moral requirement. But Paul says, so the reward that what you receive is not a gift. It's not according to grace. It's what you're owed. Then verse 5, but to the one not working. And so it's the exact same phrase with just the, the, the negative particle inserted. To the not working one, but believing. And so he, he gives us the same contrast that we see in Romans 3.28. Works of law. Now it's working one. It doesn't matter whether it's works of Mosaic law or you try to come up with some other law. The point is the category and the mindset of the individual to the one not working, but instead of doing that, believing upon the one 
justifying the ungodly. So there is a specific object of the faith. It's not just some vague, oh, I just believe, um, type thing. There is a specific, there, there has to be knowledge of who this God is. There has to be a self-revelation. It is believing in the one justifying the ungodly. His faith is reckoned, imputed, same term used in verse 4, to him as righteousness. So there's something about saving faith. And it's not faith that is trying to bring something else along and say, well, well, can I do this and can I add this? And, and you know, I know it doesn't pay for all of it, but I'll, I'll put, I'll put $10,000 in my hand. No, it's the empty hand of faith that recognizes only God justifies. That's the faith that justifies. That's the faith that brings righteousness is that empty hand of faith. And so there's a 180-degree contrast that is given in verses 4 and 5 between the attitude of the one who goes, I'm going to do these things to get something from God, and the person who recognizes the only person who can save me is God, and I cannot add anything to what he has done. So clear is this text that Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, in his really humbly named inspired version of the Bible, uh, where he, as a prophet of God, uh, made changes uh, to try to make the Bible sound more like what he was preaching. In this verse, Joseph Smith never understood grace, and he never understood the gospel because he changed Romans 4 or 5 to say, the one not justifying the ungodly. He negated it. Now, of course, we've never found a single manuscript in the world uh, that says that. It is not a possible reading whatsoever. Joseph Smith, we know, was a false prophet. But it reflects the fact that he had no earthly idea what the whole flow of the argument of the Apostle Paul was at this point. And he could not understand how God could justify the ungodly because he did not understand the work of Jesus Christ. And so then it's... Even more interesting when you look at verses 6 through 8, because now Paul wants to illustrate this from the Old Testament. And so he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness, chorus ergon, apart from, without works. And so here's the Apostle Paul. Now we're going to get in an apostolic interpretation of an Old Testament text because verses 7 and 8 is a quotation directly out of Psalm 32 in your English Bible, Psalm 31 in uh, the Greek Septuagint. But what's fascinating is, look at what Paul says. Paul says, here is the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness by faith apart from works, faith alone apart from works. But then you read verses 7 and 8, and unless you're listening carefully, you're sort of left a little confused. Blessing, how blessed is the man whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, uh, whose sins have been covered over. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Um, where's, uh, where's the word righteousness in there, Paul? Um, I don't see the word righteousness in there. And I can guarantee you that there are Jewish apologists today that will argue that Paul completely blew it here. They will, they will argue it. But a Roman Catholic can't do that, <laughs> at least not consistently. Um, and so they have to think through, well, what, is, what does this mean? Because the quotation from the Old Testament 
is about forgiveness of sins. And what is it in verse 8? The non-imputation of what? Sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not, same term, legizomai, sin. So you see, Paul sees in the non-imputation of sin, which we would see sort of as the the negative aspect, non-imputation of sin, the positive reality of the imputation of righteousness. Because you're either going to be in a position of possessing sin that condemns you or a godly righteousness that makes you right before God. It's one of the two. And so it's just like the great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our sins imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us, And so he sees in these words the fulfillment of the positive statement he has made in verse 7, and that is that God reckons righteousness apart from works. It's by faith alone, sola fide, that a person is made right before God. And that then leads us to Romans 5.1, as our time is moving by quickly. Years and years ago, uh, back when I had hair and big glasses, uh, which everybody did in the 1980s. Well, not necessarily the hair part, but you know what I mean. Uh, my wife had big hair, but I hope she doesn't ever hear this. Anyways, um, back in one of the very first debates I ever did, I was debating Mitchell Pacwa. Uh, Father Mitch, he's, you see him on TV all the time. Uh, he had a heart attack last year. Um, uh, brilliant man, speaks 12 languages. Uh, a Jesuit priest, one of the most conservative Jesuit priests you'll ever encounter, to be honest with you. I mean, he makes Pope Francis, I mean, they are on opposite uh, sides of the, of the planet when it comes to what they believe. But anyway, I'm not sure how he works that out. I haven't talked to him in a long time. But we did, we've done five debates, and they've been the best debates we've had with Roman Catholics because uh, Mitch doesn't play games, and he doesn't, try to, he doesn't try to pull stunts and things like that. He just deals with the subject. He doesn't get personal. That's what makes for the best, best debates. And he's a really nice guy. I pray for him. I really do. Um, but we were having one of the first two debates. We did the mass and justification. Not the same night. Those are two different nights. <clears throat> and we got to ask each other questions. This is one of my earliest debates. And I asked him a question. And the question basically was, in light of his knowledge of the Hebrew language, he knows that the word peace, shalom in Hebrew, does not simply mean a temporary ceasefire. There is no shalom in Israel right now because I can guarantee you 24 hours a day there are Israeli soldiers manning the Iron Dome anti-missile system that protects Israel against incoming missile attacks from her neighbors. And there are tanks on the borders and there are guns in the streets And everybody serves in the armed forces, including the women. Uh, That's why there's almost zero property crime in Israel, because the 10-year-olds have 9-millimeter Glocks. So you try to get through somebody's window, and uh, you just get riddled with holes, and so no one does that. It's just sort of how that works, you know. It's a little bit like Texas, but worse. Um, And so... But an armed society tends to be a polite society. It really does. And um, so we won't get into that right now. But um, anyway, but you know where I stand. Uh, but anyhow, <laughs> top level lifelong member of the NRA. But anyways, um, 
that means there's no peace there. Not shalom, because see, shalom is a wellness of relationship. If shalom existed between Israel and her neighbors, there would, no be, there would no, be no need for an Iron Dome missile system. There would be no need to have all those tanks on the borders because it's a wellness of relationship. And so in light of what shalom means, what I asked Mitch Paco was, how could, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's the greatest commandment. How could breaking anything less than the greatest command bring anything, be anything other than a mortal sin? I mean, Rome has never defined exactly what a mortal sin is, but murder would be generally admitted by all Roman Catholic theologians to be a mortal sin. And yet Jesus said the greatest commandment was love the Lord God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I said, if you admit that it's possible that you could break the greatest commandment before you go to bed tonight, and hence commit a mortal sin, and lay your head down upon a pillow, no longer the friend of God, no longer at peace with God, how can you say you have shalom with God if the warfare could begin before you lay down this evening? How can you say that you have true shalom with God? His first response was somewhat non-responsive. Maybe he didn't fully understand the question, but it sort of went around. I had the opportunity of sort of redirecting it, and I really refocused it in light of what shalom means and your admission that you could commit a mortal sin and be the enemy of God in a very short period of time. How is that a wellness of relationship? And the credit I've got to give to Mitch Pacwa is you listen to that. I, I would love to show you the video of it, but only the Roman Catholics videotaped it, and they'd never give us the videotape. They've suppressed it for all these years. Well, they did offer it to us for $5,000. We have never really had the money to do that, and I'm not sure it even exists anymore. But um, if you listen to the audio, we did get that anyways. We were smart enough to grab the cassette tapes. That's how long ago this was. Um, young, you young people don't know what that is, but don't worry about it. Ask, ask your parents this evening. Um, ask your parents, why would you ever need a pencil for something you listen to music on? Well, I don't understand. <laughs> It ate it again. That's my favorite. Anyway. All the old people are going, uh-huh, and young people are going, you people are weird. Did you have dinosaurs back then? You know, well, anyway, you listen to the audio, and it gets, gets quiet. And, there, and, and in a debate, dead air is not a good thing. You know, everyone automatically assumes if you're having to think that you've been caught, you know. That's sort of how it works in a debate. But there's this silence, and then Mitch says, I don't know. I don't know. And I've asked many a Roman Catholic. Remember back in Romans uh, chapter uh, 4, the blessed man. Uh, you can find the video of this online. <clears throat> if you go online and, and, and Google uh, Peter Stravinskis James White, and on YouTube up will come some clips. One of them is this fascinating interaction in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you want to see a Roman Catholic priest melt down on purgatory, uh, it was fascinating. It really was. Uh, and believe me, Peter Stravinskis is not happy that when you Google his name, the first thing you see is that uh, on, on YouTube. But, but uh, there is another one. Um, in, in talking to him, I asked him the question. I said, who is the blessed man of Romans 4.8? You know what his first answer was? Jesus. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not... What? Impute his sin. Hmm, okay. Uh, I think you might want to rethink that. 
because that really doesn't fit. Uh, so let's, let's try it again. Um, it's obviously not Jesus. So are you the blessed man? And his response was, I hope to be. I hope to be. Because you see, in Roman Catholicism, there is no non-imputation of sin. If you commit a, a venial sin, guess who it's imputed to? You. If you commit a mortal sin, who's it imputed to? You. There is no non-imputation of sin. It's just not a category within Roman Catholic thought. So you can't really understand what Paul's talking about. And so it's understandable why even their, their priests struggle to deal with the categories of the biblical gospel because they are so accustomed to a gospel that is primarily based upon tradition and upon traditional interpretations. And so that is why I have strongly emphasized, you've seen my book, The Roman Catholic Controversy, it's, wow, just realized uh, last year was its 20th anniversary. It's 21 years old now, but it's still in print. People are still using it. The issues have pretty much stayed the same. I really emphasize that the reason for evangelizing Roman Catholics is found in Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. Irene is the Greek term, but behind that in Paul's thought clearly is the term shalom. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at the grammar of the term dikaiothentes, what is being said is the peace that we have now with God. And I realize there's a textual variant here, but even Roman Catholic uh, scholars agree with us on the original reading here. The peace that we have with God is a present tense reality the justification is something that we look back upon that gives rises, rise to the peace that we have now. The grammar of the text, when you have this, this aorist passive form with the form of the verb, the grammar of the text is indicating that having been justified by faith, not by works of law, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not as in Roman Catholicism where having been justified, I can have peace as long as I don't do certain things for now. But if I do, then I'll lose the peace and I'll have to be re-justified again and then lose it and then be re-justified and so on and so forth. Having been justified by faith, the result of that justification by faith is the continuing state of peace with God. When you conflate justification and sanctification, you lose the distinction that is necessary for understanding what Paul is teaching. If you separate them completely, you fall into the error that unfortunately is very popular in our area uh, here. Uh, you don't have to, there's no such thing as needing repentance and godliness of life and so on and so forth. And so you can fall off the other side uh, into a, a fault system there. The two are intimately connected, but they must be distinguished because the basis upon which they take place is different. One is a declaration on God's part, the Father's part, on the finished work of Christ in regards to his elect people. That's what justification is, and that's why it gives rise to peace with God.
And so this is why we want to stick with the biblical text when discussing this issue with our Roman Catholic friends and with anybody else that struggles with why we are to have peace with God. I, I wish that I could tell you, and it is general knowledge of all conservative evangelicals today, the doctrine of justification. We can all explain that to people, right? Uh, sadly, not necessarily so. But it needs to be because I often close by asking people, why did you get up this morning? and not fear the wrath of God. Knowing your thoughts yesterday, knowing your own heart, how is it that you woke up this morning so insensitive that you would not fear the wrath of God? Well, unfortunately for most people, it's because we weren't really thinking about it. We don't take the wrath of God overly seriously. But hopefully for the believer, the reason honestly is because I know God's wrath has been perfectly propitiated in my Savior, Jesus Christ. I have trusted him. I, I rest in his righteousness. And hence, my not fearing the wrath of God is not because I don't take the wrath of God seriously, but because I recognize the means by which he has provided for the appeasement of that wrath in my place. And that is the glorious doctrine of justification by faith. So just some things to think about this morning. Um, again, if, if all the grammar was of any trouble to you, uh, Emilio's right back there, and uh, you can uh, talk to him. Uh, there he is. Why are you pointing at me? I told you I'd get done a quarter after, and I, I, I got pretty close. So, uh, but if you'd, if you'd like to. <coughs> Questions? I told you it was just clear. It was so clear. Yes, sir. Um, well, okay, let's, let's start off by saying it has nothing to do with the doctrine of justification, right? Uh, so we're totally shifting, shifting gears to a completely different topic. Um, I would need to read the text to give any meaningful response to that. I mean, I could, I could throw something out, but I don't like to do that. Um, obviously, the house of Jeroboam was uh, under judgment from God, but I'd have to look at the rest of it to give any meaningful response to it. On the doctrine of justification, please. Yes. Uh, the authority of the church. And the question was, what's, why, why would Roman Catholics just not embrace this clear, obvious biblical teaching? Well, it's, it's not clear and obvious to them because of what they've been taught. Um, and as long as you believe in the authority of the church and the authority of your priest, um, 
if, if you embrace this, then you, you're going to have to believe that all those works that you've been doing, and if you've gone to Rome and climbed up the uh, Scala Sancta, the holy uh, stairs on your knees, stopping at each stair to uh, pray in Our Father to get somebody out of purgatory, and uh, uh, all the indulgences that you've, you've earned, and uh, the fastings, and it's all been nothing. It's meant zip. It has, has had no effect whatsoever. It's hard for a lot of people to accept that. And it's hard for a lot of people to accept the idea that they had loved ones that spent their entire life working, 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 and they were working for nothing. Uh, so there's lots of reasons uh, why, you know, a, a person has to have a changed heart to want to submit to what's in the Word of God. And until that heart is changed, you're going to hold on to your self-righteous works as hard as you possibly can, no matter how clearly it's explained to you. <laughs> well, they've had a long time to be working on it. Uh, uh, anything in church history, especially the... the uh, Rome's modern doctrines and dogmas. Um, beware of all those tracks and books that you can find that will say things like, uh, the doctrine of purgatory was invented in 1414. And No, uh, history just doesn't work that way. It's not like everybody believed the same thing up to 1414, woke up one day and said, hey, purgatory is cool, and now everyone's going to believe that. No, it never worked that way. It, it, there is development over time. Purgatory especially is a good example of uh, of streams of, of belief that develop over time and take interesting twists and turns that eventually start getting wrapped together. And, uh, you know, indulgences. Uh, the doctrine of purgatory didn't have to result in the doctrine of indulgences, but it ended up doing so. It, and and you, we can only look back to history and see these things. And so Rome's doctrine of justification uh, was still squishy, uh, at the time of the Reformation, but the Reformation forced it into a much more concrete form. So you look at the Council of Trent, and there's no question about what Trent meant by its anathemas and things like that. But since then, um, once, you, once you start mixing in postmodernism and, and stuff like that and the liberalism within the Roman Catholic hierarchy, uh, you can get all sorts of strange uh, <clears throat> things to go along with it. So I can tell you what Rome has taught about justification in the past, but like I said, what, uh, what Pope Francis actually believes on that subject today, I, even if I was a Roman Catholic, I'm not sure I could actually with confidence tell you what he believes about it and whether Rome will continue to teach that for decades or even centuries to come. And the funny thing is, Rome's big selling point is, hey, we're the unchanging church. You know, If you're tired of all these different Protestant denominations, teach different things, Come with us. And it's like, yeah, right. Um, open your eyes, guys. Um, your, your leaders are rudderless ships. And uh, you could, you know, this pope could go absolutely wacky on you, and you don't, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and then you might go back the other direction with the next pope, and then who knows where from that. Um, it, it's 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 tough tough days for Roman Catholic apologists when it comes to that particular issue. They had it pretty easy when I first started debating because John Paul II was pope for so long that they had a period of relative consistency. Uh, but then they took a hard right with Ratzinger and now a hard left with Francis. And so uh, the the deck chairs on the ship are flying all over the place, and it's uh, pretty tough to stay 
Yes, sir. Yeah, Emilio outranks everybody. Oh, you don't have one. Oh, okay. Okay, I can see you easier through the lights than anybody else. Simplistic ways. Hmm. Uh, sometimes simplistic ways are dangerous ways. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, justification is the forensic declaration of God based upon the work of Christ. There are uses of the term sanctification. For example, the book of Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews pretty much uses it as a synonym. Uh, but there are other places where sanctification is specifically in regards to our activities, our being set apart in holiness, and so on and so forth. And that's, that's not the... Um, uh, direct result of, of a forensic declaration on God's part. Uh, if someone wants to try to confuse them, you can't stop them, but you're going to end up with mishmash uh, as far as what the New Testament's actually teaching from a consistent perspective. And I can't force anybody to want to listen to the New Testament consistently. If, if you want to turn somebody inside out, I have people that interpret my own writings to me in strange and odd ways. And I'm sort of like, wait a minute, but I wrote that. I get to interpret that. No, you don't. Okay, whatever. Uh, you, can't, you, know, you can't stop somebody from doing that. And if someone does, does not want to allow the New Testament to be its own final voice, they will find, they will find ways around it. So I don't know if there's a simplistic way of doing that. Uh, it's, it, the ultimate proof is the consistent interpretation of the text over time. So with that, we are, com- we are finished. We will have 